This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The president and his fellow Democrats had visions of a massive $3.5 trillion budget plan that would remake the social safety net and enact ambitious reforms to address climate change. But then reality hit. So we'll go in-depth on where the Biden agenda stands. Industry groups from retail to manufacturing to transportation lobbying the White House to delay enforcement of the new COVID vaccination rules until after the holidays. This in the hopes of avoiding having to fire a whole lot of unvaccinated people. And if you've ever felt like taking a Tesla on a test drive, go rent one from Hertz. How hard will states looking to attract productions actually crack down on safety protocols in the wake of the deadly onset accident in New Mexico? We're going to talk with two infectious disease experts who remain skeptical about the need for booster shots. And then a Stevie Van Zandt, guitarist in one of the greatest rock and roll bands, actor in one of the best TV shows, now is an author. Uh, little Stevie will be on the show. And it's a really interesting book. It really is. Yeah. Yeah, lots of interesting stuff in there. We'll talk to him a little bit later. We start, though... With the Biden budget, Maya McGinnis is president of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Maya, thanks for being with us. So the president has come a long way from his original proposal of a $3 trillion plan. A lot of compromises along the way. What do you think we're going to end up with? What is he going to end up with? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Predicting this one is really difficult because it could be anywhere from a six, a five or a six trillion dollar plan shrunk to look much smaller, like a one or two trillion dollar plan, all the way down to nothing happens and this whole deal falls apart. There are such slim margins. There is so much disagreement. And these are such massively large policies that people don't even understand the details yet that it is, it is virtually impossible to come close to predicting where we're going to land. When we talk about shrinking, though, is it that? Are we shrinking everything in terms of dollar amounts or in terms of time? Or are we shrinking by just taking a, a, an axe to whole programs at once? Well, I think the right way to do this, and I think it's funny because people keep calling this like the cuts to the program. So, like they don't actually exist. So all of this would be new increases in spending. I think that's the way to think about it. But the right way to do that from the wish list, the $6 trillion wish list that they have is to say, we can do this and we can't do this. This is in, this isn't in. Or to target these programs better to the people who need them the most instead of beyond to higher income people who might not need them so much. But the way that I think we're moving is saying, let's just put this program in for one year or three years, bank on the fact that it will be possible. And we don't want to pay for it that long. But once it's in place, we think it will get enough support that then it will just stay there. And the worry, of course, is that then it is really a much larger program than it looks like on paper. We don't pay for it. We add to the national debt. And this leaves the debt skyrocketing at the same time that these policies are being extended. No matter what this ends up being, there are going to be a lot of people disappointed, right? I, I mean, the progressive wing is already in, of the Democratic Party is already indicating they're disappointed. The Republicans hated it from the get-go. The moderates think that he's selling out. Uh, I, I mean, how do you make as many people as possible happy? Well... It's such a complicated question because also a lot of times people are happy in the moment, but not happy in the longer term. Think about what, what my job is, is to focus on making something fiscally responsible. What that means is saying we're going to spend less money or raise more taxes to pay for it. 
that doesn't always make people happy in the immediate or the campaign commercials, right? But years from now, when we don't have the as high a mountain of debt as we otherwise would have, we will be happier. So people are going to be happy if they get new spending and unhappy if they have to have higher taxes to pay for it. But somewhere in between lays the real, the realistic approach, which is if something's good enough to have, it's good enough to pay for. And then we have to evaluate the trade-offs. I think almost the question about what will make us happy in some ways, it's like what we do wrong with policies these days. We all want immediate gratification instead of really looking at the priorities of the country. What are the most important things? How do we pay for them? How do we stay strong as an economy? And I will say, even though people can differ on this, I think there are a lot of important priorities in these packages. We have been over-consuming and under-investing for a long time. I think looking at some of the investment areas are particularly important, but we shouldn't put them in place unless we're willing to pay for them. Maya McGinnis, president of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Well, for years, you've listened to him play with Bruce Springsteen. You've watched him plan mob hits on The Sopranos. A little bit later on In Depth, we will be joined by Stevie Van Sant, who has a new book out, when In Depth continues. Listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson, I'm Charles Feldman. Still to come, how willing will states like New Mexico and Georgia eager to attract Hollywood productions? How eager will they be to crack down on safety regulations in the wake of the uh, deadly accident involving Alec Baldwin and the cinematographer? Uh, we'll talk about that uh, again later on in the show. Right now, though, new federal workplace rules requiring all employees at big companies be vaccinated against COVID-19, which is effectively acting as a backdoor vaccine mandate, could be put into place before Thanksgiving. But leaders from several big industries, from retail to manufacturing to transportation, they are asking the Biden White House for more time for enforcement. They fear that there's going to be a, a wave of firings or resignations. Evan Armstrong is vice president of workforce at the Retail Industry Leaders Association. Evan, thanks for being with us. Do you really think that that's a likelihood that if this isn't postponed, that you're going to see a wave of people leaving their jobs, their, their paychecks? Well, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to uh, speak with you today. Uh, yes, this is a um, concern uh, for major retailers that uh, the way the ETS, this vaccine mandate will be rolled out, uh, could potentially create um, you know, a spike in resignations at a time uh, where we're already having a labor shortage, which has uh, caused supply chain disruption. And, you know, obviously the holiday season is key for retail. And, you know, we want to make sure we have as many uh, of our workers as we can to make sure we're meeting the consumer's demand. Although we are also in a, another race, which is to get enough people vaccinated before winter hits, and then we see quite possibly another surge. So it's probably timed for some of that. You want to get people their shots before, you know, it's super cold outside and everyone's staying inside. Absolutely. I mean, the, the retail industry, our, our members uh, and uh, realize and association have been out front supporting vaccinations. Our members have had uh, vaccination programs, incentive programs uh, that have lasted uh, th almost throughout this entire year. Um, uh, that has not uh, gotten everybody vaccinated in the, in the retail uh, industry. And there's a, a, a roughly 4 million retail workers that potentially are unvaccinated right now. So uh, it's just a monumental undertaking to implement 
the vaccine mandate and or the testing protocols, which is also a key part of the Biden mandate. Um, and it's just going to be difficult for our members to uh, implement it and certainly will be very difficult during the holiday season. Are you getting or are you hearing any signals from the Biden White House that it's willing to entertain the notion of a postponement? We haven't heard anything explicitly, but uh, I think it's a good sign that the White House uh, through OMB and OIRA are taking more meetings uh, than maybe they originally planned to. I think they're hearing a consistent drumbeat from across industries and most importantly from retail that there is going to need to be an implementation period so that at the very least we can be successful in this uh, uh, mandate testing uh, and vaccine mandate. Um, and I think pushing it past the holiday season would alleviate a key concern for a number of industries, uh, most importantly, retail. Circling back, though, to the idea that people will either quit or be fired. I mean, people are saying this about the airlines when this would go into effect. But then everybody points to United and says, well, they already did it and they didn't lose that many people in proportion to how many people they actually have working there. Yeah, it's certainly uh, key data points from from airlines and healthcare have uh, indicated that the resignation wave uh, did not happen, certainly in those sectors. Uh, but I think retail and frontline retail and distribution centers are uh, substantially different uh, in their workforce. And, and those are the key areas within the retail workforce that have been slow to take up the vaccination. And they're also the most key uh, parts of the retail world that drive our supply chain. Um, so I think you have a lot of factors coming into play where uh, the key parts of the retail world that drive supply chain and get uh, goods to consumers are the one place where we have the most trouble getting workers vaccinated. And I think there's just ultimately more alternative work choices for those individuals than for individuals in healthcare and airlines. Evan Armstrong, Vice President of Workforce at the Retail Industry Leaders Association. So if you've ever seen a Tesla go by and you thought, you know, I'd like to uh, I'd like to drive one, but maybe you don't want to or you can't spend the money because they're expensive, mm -hmm. those cars. Mm -hmm. Well, soon there's another way you could put yourself in one of those cars. We'll tell you how. And this is KNX In-Depth, along with Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson. Well, not only has Stevie Van Sant played the right-hand man to Bruce Springsteen. Oh, no, he did more than that. He was also the right-hand man to Tony Soprano. But more than that, he also helped to bring down the apartheid government in South Africa. Some of you may be going, huh? Well, well <laughs> it's quite a life. It, it's an incredible life, and Stevie Van Sant will uh, join us on In-Depth uh, to talk about all of that in his new uh, memoir, and that's coming up in just a few minutes. Right now, though, Hertz Made History makes a big investment in electric vehicles. The uh, rental company just purchased 100,000 Teslas, the brand's largest ever order by a single buyer. Uh, joining us is Matt Lorenzo, Senior Managing Editor for Kelly Blue Book. Matt, thanks for being with us. So first off, wasn't Hertz just going bankrupt not too long ago? And then second, this also must be like a a big chunk of what Tesla can actually produce in a year. Yes and yes. Uh, it was last summer, actually, that they went bankrupt. And part of that was related to uh, the drop in travel from, you know, uh, the COVID uh, shutdown. Uh, and it is a big order for for um, for Tesla. The interesting thing about it is that um, the 100,000 units are all Model 3 sedans. And Tesla doesn't break out its production between Model 3 and Model Y, and I suspect that um, 
sedan sales aren't that great uh, in general. So it's kind of a win-win actually. Tesla will be able to build more Model 3 sedans and then um, uh, Hertz certainly gets a rub off from the, from the Tesla name in terms of its stock. Now, I mean, when, when people rent cars, uh, I know sometimes when I've rented a car, I mean, sometimes it's for short distances. Sometimes you want mm -hmm. bigger, you know, longer ones. Is that likely to be an issue? I mean, I suspect some people are just going to want to see what it's like to drive one. But there is that, that limitation on how far they can go. Well, yeah, I, I think a lot of people will, from a curiosity point of view, want to rent one uh, before they, they actually buy one. But I think most business travelers um, probably, you know, you, you may get a tank of gas and you, you, you might not even use the whole tank of gas. And I, it'll be interesting to see how they handle that, because one of the you know, big bugaboos about renting a car is you bring it back and you don't have a full tank and they charge you, uh, you know, five or six bucks a gallon, which isn't that much more now than what we're paying anyway. But uh, it'll be interesting to see how they handle the charging situation. And some hotels and things that you may be staying at may have um, uh, places to charge the car. So I, I don't see that as big of an issue um, for local local uh, daily rentals. How big is this in the car industry, the rental industry world? Because, I mean, the familiar things is that it's just the classic like American makes. You know, you either get a Dodge or a Jeep or sometimes a Nissan. That's what you can rent. Uh, nothing that's too fun. And then And then here comes Hertz with all the Teslas. Well, you, I, I think that's really a great selling point for them. But also it shows that uh, as much as um, Elon Musk wants to reinvent the auto industry, he's just discovered something that's kept a lot of factories open and that's selling a lot of rental cars to uh, large rental firms. And, 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 and this is just like um, Hertz buying a bunch of Fords back in the day. I, I mean, do we know anything about what the price point's gonna be to rent one of these? No, but I, um, I, I think it'll probably be in line with sort of a premium compact car. So you'll probably see daily rates somewhere, you know, 70 to, you know, 70 to $100. Um, but again, I, they may want to do kind of a promotion on it, too, and, and could, could uh, be running it for, for less. But typically, um, a midsize or compact car like the Model 3 will go, you know, for, for about 70 bucks a day. So if I'm Enterprise or Alamo and I'm sitting here, what am I thinking? Uh, you may want to get on the bandwagon. I don't know if it's too late. Um, yeah, because Hertz bought be all the you know, Actually, I think you wait and see how it goes for Hertz. You know, if, if there's a big clamor for renting electric cars and it's a big, it's a big success. Yeah. I, I think the other genius thing about it right now is rental car companies are having a hard time uh, getting new cars, you know, with all the production uh, cutbacks and the fact that they sold off a lot of their fleets last year, they're short of cars. And that's one of the reasons why both new and used car prices are climbing is that some rental companies are actually going into the late model used car market to, to, uh, to bring well, their fleets back up to, to well, the they're levels not, they were before the pandemic. They're not just short on cars. I was at a place not too long ago at a major airport where couldn't get the rental car for hours because they were short of people to clean them. Yep. That's yeah, that's the other issue. Um, staffing, uh, you know, just having the cars is one thing, but having the people who can actually turn them around for the next uh, customer is another. 
Matt DiLorenzo, Senior Managing Editor for Kelly Blue Book. Well, coming up next, we're going to uh, talk with Stevie Van Sant about his uh, new book, Very Interesting Life. You're listening to KNX In-Depth, along with Mike Simpson, I'm Charles Feldman. North Jersey is Stevie Van Zant. Stevie Van Zant, North Jersey from the mid-70s when he started writing music for an upstart singer named Bruce Springsteen, eventually joining the E Street Band in the late 90s when he started playing mobster Silvio Dante on The Sopranos. Stevie Van Zant has embodied the culture, the music, the feel of northern New Jersey. But Van Zant was busy with a whole lot more throughout the length of his impressive career. You can add author to his title now. Singer, songwriter, guitarist, producer, actor, radio host. (laughs) (laughs) And now author. The the list is endless. Author of the new book, Unrequited Infatuations, a memoir. Stevie Van Zandt joins us now on In-Depth. Thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. So i got to tell you, I'm going to be totally honest with you. I sat down last night. And I, my intention was to just skim through the book so I had kind of an idea about what we would talk about today. And I found myself up until about one in the morning and I finished the entire book. It is that interesting and it is that good. And you've had an amazing life. Well, that's quite a compliment. Thank you. So, but here's my question. It's an interesting title too, Unrequited Infatuations. Uh, that's an interesting way of, of putting a, a sort of summation of your life. Why that title? I was looking for something uh, a bit more universal. Uh, I wanted the book to be about more than just a music, uh, a music book for music people. You know, um, you know, the first half of the book is, is pretty much that, you know, local kid from Jersey makes it to the top of rock and roll. And, and, and that's a great story by itself. But I think it gets a little bit more interesting in the second half uh, when I when I leave the uh, E Street Band and um, and suddenly I have you know no plan and and um, and um, you know the bigger themes start to emerge. I think a search for identity, a search for purpose in life, uh, a search for spiritual enlightenment, and these are things I think that everybody can relate to. Um, I have had some fantastic success uh, with the East Street Band and Sopranos and Lilyhammer and, and, and the Sun City Project. Um, but, um, but most of my most personal work has never found an audience, you know. So there's always two sides of that story. And I, and I, think, I think most people sooner or later have some disappointment in their lives. And it's not the disappointment that matters, but it's what you do with the disappointment afterwards. You know, can you find a way to move forward? Because if you can, you know, destiny is going to surprise you and, and show that it's, uh, you're, not, you're not done yet, you know? How long ago did you start putting this on paper, or was this like a pandemic project? It was pretty much a pandemic project, yeah. <laughs> I, I, uh, I had tried it like 10 years ago, and I just couldn't figure it out. Uh, and then as it turned out, the, uh, 2017, 18, and 19 turned out to be the most productive years of my entire life. Uh, I, I got six album packages out in those three years uh, and uh, two new albums, Soul Fire and Summer of Sorcery. So it was really uh, a reconnection to my life's work in, in a way that was unexpected and unplanned, like most of my life, as you've seen in the book. Um, <laughs> and so it kind of gave me a little bit of closure on this chapter of my life. And I was able to sit down and figure out a beginning, middle and end. In, in your, your book, uh, you described yourself in childhood as being a pretty religious kid, right, when you were growing up. Yeah, uh, yeah. And then uh, I believe you said you had sort of two epiphanies that really did change your life. What were those? 
Well, uh, I've had several, but, but the first was uh, just listening to a record one day and suddenly I just had this feeling of uh, like, you know, what re religious people express as a feeling of ecstasy come over them. And uh, I just found myself being moved by music in a way that was new. And then suddenly, and then, and then the Beatles come on, on, this, uh, on this variety show called Ed Sullivan, which the whole family would watch on Sunday night. And, um, and, and um, this was a new experience for us to actually see a band. There weren't that many bands in America at that time. You know, they, it was not a, it was not a thing. Um, there were doo-wop groups and, and singing groups and, and, you know, and instrumental groups and individuals. But you didn't see that many bands, you know, four or five guys singing and playing. Um, it just didn't, it just wasn't a thing. And, and then suddenly, overnight, uh, the Beatles, uh, uh, you know, just absolutely changed the culture. And, and then everybody had a band. Everybody had a band the next day in their garage, you know, <laughs> and, I, and I was one of them. <laughs> All of these things that you've done, is it you're laser focused, you want to be the best, or you can't hold still? And I guess both of those can be true at the same time. Yeah, I, I, early on, I just decided um, if I had to choose, I'm going to choose quality over quantity. And, and, uh, and, you know, greatness became a thing for me. You know, I seek it out. Uh, I, I, I support it when I find it and I try and achieve it. And it was because of, of growing up in, in, in the Renaissance period of the 60s, which was, uh, you know, it's, it's a Renaissance when the greatest art being made is also the most commercial. And that's what was going on. And so the standards got set very, very high. And I've maintained those standards my whole life. And sometimes I haven't been quite as productive as I would like. That's my, my dog chipping in every now and then. What kind uh, of dog? <laughs> we Charles. always ask. Yes, we always ask about dogs. <laughs> which, you might, which might make an appearance in a minute <laughs> if she doesn't shut up. Um, uh, you know, and, and I, I, I uh, <laughs> uh, what were we talking about? I forgot. <laughs> um, anyway. Looking for greatness and supporting greatness. Uh, yeah, Quality yeah, yeah. over so, quantity. Yeah. And, then, right. and then you were upstaged by your dog. <laughs> <laughs> but i mean that and, and you know i really uh I, I wish i had more output through the years to be to be honest but but i, I decided early on i just you know things have to be just if my name's going to be on something it, ha it has to be as good as it can possibly be and and i you know that's how i've maintained my work when, it's, it's a good way when, to do it yeah when when we have uh, we're going to take a break and when we come back uh, we, you want to talk to you about the uh, sopranos which was a big part of your life too and a, uh, a way that many people who are listening maybe even first came to know you if they weren't listening to the music you were making so we'll get into that when we come back You're listening to KNX In-Depth, Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. And we are still uh, talking with Stevie Van Sant, who is the author of a new memoir. It's called Unrequited Infatuations. Uh, so, Stevie, uh, when there was a time when David uh, Chase, right, who created The Sopranos, came to you, and I think some listeners who are not familiar with your life may be surprised about this. He came to you and said what? Well, um, they, they, he'd seen me uh, induct the Rascals in, into Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and, um, and was creating a, a, a TV show that was, he wanted new faces and uh, it was going to be his last TV show, really. He wanted to get into the movie business and uh, which, where he is now. And, um, you know, so he, he, he called, you know, asked me to be in the show. And um, 
I said, wow, thank you very much. But, um, you know, I got one problem here. I'm not an actor. (laughs) (laughs) Minor issue. (laughs) Minor, minor problem. And uh, he said, yes, you are. You just don't know it yet. So come on down. And um, um, basically offered me the role of Tony Soprano. (laughs) Tony Soprano. Uh, he wanted yeah. you, he wanted yeah. you to be Tony. Yeah. And, you know, luckily, you know, wiser heads prevailed and, and, and the, the, the correct uh, the guy got the part that uh, Jimmy Gandolfini, one of the greatest actors of all time, I think. But um, um, at that point, uh, the, you know, HBO wouldn't let him cast me as Tony Soprano. Right? <laughs> so, uh, and they said, OK, well, you know, what else do you want to do? I said, you know, now that I think about it, David, I, I got to tell you the truth. I'm, I'm having trouble. Um, I, I, I don't feel that good about taking an actor's job. I mean, these guys work too hard. They go to classes, they do off Broadway and, and everything. And here I am coming, coming off the street. So he said, okay, I'll tell you what, then um, you're not going to take an actor's job. I will write you in a part that doesn't exist. And, um, and so, you know, uh, he said, what do you want to do? I said, well, I'd never thought about acting, but I, I, I was thinking about writing and, and maybe directing someday. And I had a treatment about an independent hitman named Silvio Dante. And he had a club uh, it was set in present day, but he kind of lived in the past. So it was like a Copacabana type of club, big bands, you know, Catskills comics and, mm. and uh, dancing girls and, you know, uh, all that cool stuff from the 40s and 50s. And he said, well, that's a good idea. Let me take it to HBO. And he came back a couple of days later and said, eh, we can't afford it. So we'll make it a strip club. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> it's good. Um, do you do you miss TV? Yeah, you know I really do. I I I just love it. I love it, and uh, I took everything I learned on Sopranos and I used it on Lilyhammer, and uh, I was very very proud of that thing. You know, I co-wrote it, co-produced it, and and uh, you know even directed the final episode. And uh, and uh, you know it was Netflix's first show, and we were, I was very very proud of that. And very proud of uh, of Ted Sarandos, who had the courage to, uh, you know, use a, a little Norwegian show with subtitles as, as the very first show on Netflix when they were about to start this whole new content division. You know, what a what a courageous move that was. And and so I'm so happy for his success. He deserves every bit of it. You know. Well, talking yeah. about about courageous moves, Stevie, your book opens up uh, in a kind of a surprising way, at least for me, it was uh, in South Africa. So explain that one. Yeah, I wanted the book to read like a detective novel, almost like a Dan Brown book, you know, where you don't really know what's coming next because I didn't know what's coming next in my life. So I wanted to kind of read that way, you know, and um, I start, uh, yeah, on on one of my trips to South Africa when I was doing the research uh, for what would end up being uh, the Sun City song and Sun City project. um, I had a, I, I went twice, you know, the first time I'm meeting with everybody trying to keep an open mind, you know, because they were talking about uh, reforms of the apartheid system back then. And I was, you know, I was saying, all right, I, I want to see them. Let's, you know, let's, let's, you know, let's keep an open mind. But then I, 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 took, I took a second trip down there because I wanted to get a little bit more in depth. And, um, and that time, I, you know, I was meeting with very, very dangerous people and a very serious people. And uh, that's why I wanted to talk to them. I, I needed them to endorse my idea 
because I didn't want to be talking. Uh, I, I wanted to be speaking for the for the, Af the South African people that couldn't speak for themselves at that time. You know, I, I didn't want to impose my own ideas on the thing. I wanted it to be representing them very accurately. So I had to meet with the real hardcore guys. And it, it, the, the book starts off with that with that scene. How were you received when you went places like that and, and met with those people? <laughs> I think, uh, honest, honestly, I, I think my rock and roll appearance really helped because, <laughs> because they're like, you know, the government has lots of spies, but they're not this crazy. <laughs> it's not this guy. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, they, they wouldn't go this far, you know. So, uh, you know, I, I think they just thought I was this kind of eccentric and weird. And, you know, I'm there trying to convince them. I'm trying to convince people who don't have any electricity that I'm going to win their war on TV. You know, it was a, it was a, it was a tough sell. <laughs> Do you ever sort of get up in the morning and kind of pinch yourself because you've had a very interesting and wide-ranging life and career thus far, but do you ever sort of kind of think, you know, wow, did this actually all happen to me? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I tend to look forward. You know, tell you the truth, I don't really look back very often. So the, writing a book was quite a trip for me. I had to really transport myself back and, and uh relive a lot of this stuff um it, it was a lot it was a lot to fit in the book that's that's why i knew it was a lot because we the book could have been twice as long you know? uh, <laughs> then i would so have been I, up until three yeah, in the morning no sleep <laughs> straight through the night slept at all <laughs> yeah i mean it's just one of those things that like i say my successes are, are balanced out you know in a way by by my my most personal work never having found an audience you know so it's like it's a nice balance you know it keeps you grounded you know and yet grateful grounded but grateful so it's a it's you know it's a nice combination yeah that's a good way to be what's next for you well i i do want to get back on tv i've got five completed scripts i got another 25 treatments i've got all kinds of ideas for tv um I, I would also like to keep the disciples of soul together the band i put together these last previous three years uh, when I did those two two world tours of, of uh, both Soulfire and Summer of Sorcery. But um, if, if Bruce wants to go out, I'm going to give Bruce first priority. And, and if he wants to take the E Street Band out in 2022, uh, that's what I'll do. I'll, I'll go I'll go with him because um, we uh, we made a terrific record right before the quarantine called Letter to You. And um, it's just itching to be played live. So I, I'm hoping we can uh, I'm hoping we can do that. And we'll see, you know, virus permitting i guess you know, we'll yeah, see what yeah. Right. I, I gotta i gotta you know we don't normally uh stevie take questions from uh listeners but this one actually comes from our boss so we're stuck <laughs> it's <laughs> contractually obligated yeah, for this one we have to ask, he asks this question steve he says how did you go from miami steve van zandt to little steve van zandt <laughs> well um you know Miami Steve was a character uh, in the E Street Band. We were kind of the rock and roll Rat Pack, you know. And I was in the Dean Martin role, and 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 Clarence was Sammy on steroids. Um, <laughs> and we were kind of, um, you know, we were never a nameless, faceless uh, sidemen. You know, we always had personalities and 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 and, char and were characters. And uh, um, and I was the fun guy, you know. I was the party guy, and, and uh, you know, if you want to have a party, I was the first phone call, you know. So when I started my career and became an artist, uh, as opposed to just a sideman and, you know, the second banana, if you will, 
uh, I decided, well, we got to do a slight, we got to do a slight change of identity here. Um, but you know, still have a nickname because you know, I don't want to, I, I want to make it clear that I'm taking my work seriously, but I'm not taking myself too seriously. So we'll still have a nickname and, and we'll base it on uh, the guy who I feel invented rock and roll, little Richard and, and, uh, my favorite blues guy, little Walter. And, uh, the first record I ever bought was by little Anthony and the Imperials. So, um, you know, kind of went with a, with a new nickname because it was a kind of a new identity at that time. We got it answered. There you go. Yeah. Good job. Uh, Stevie Van Zandt, <laughs> thanks so much for talking Thank to you. us. Hey, my pleasure, guys. All right. More in-depth is on the way. Another half an hour. We're back on KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. And I'm Charles Feldman. In the wake of Alec Baldwin accidentally shooting and killing the cinematographer on the set of his film in New Mexico, the emphasis in Hollywood is turning to reinforcing safety procedures. But if you're a state government official in a place like New Mexico or maybe Georgia, where you are very much in the business of attracting new Hollywood productions, how interested might you be in trying to ramp up regulations? Jonathan Handel, veteran entertainment attorney, is with with us, Jonathan, thanks. So I guess one of the starting points would be a lot of states don't have actually any rules about gun use on sets. So, so these would have to be put into place. And then we get to that question, is the interest necessarily going to be there when Hollywood is such big business, if you can lure them in? Well, the states that don't have their own occupational safety rules uh, are governed by federal occupational safety rules, which do apply. Uh, so, for example, in California, we have a set of rules that are deemed to be at least as protective. And so we have, we have Cal OSHA, the California Occupational Safety uh, Organization, Occupational Safety and Health Agency. Other states don't, but that does not mean that those rules don't apply. Uh, that doesn't mean that civil liability and potentially criminal liability uh, don't potentially exist in a situation like this. So you really have to think of it as a, as a set of gradations. There are, there are regulatory liabilities, there are potential or potential regulatory liabilities for an unsafe workplace. Uh, there are potential civil liabilities and there are potential criminal liabilities. And you also have to look at who and what entity might be liable, the production company, the armorer, which is the person who's in charge of uh, guns on a set, and the first assistant director who is in charge of overall safety on a set and also was the person who handed uh, finally, Alec Baldwin, who you mentioned, the actor uh, who uh, was told it was a cold gun and uh, and actually uh, was the person holding the gun when it discharged, whether he deliberately pulled the trigger or, or whether that was as he was demonstrating how he was going to draw the gun from his uh, holster is not is not yet known. But of course, having rules and regulations on the books, as you know, is one thing and vigorous enforcement might be another, uh, which kind of leads back to the, the initial question, which is that states like New Mexico, Georgia have done a pretty good job, actually, in the past few years, lowering productions away from Hollywood because it's cheaper and because there are sort of less regulations about a whole host of things than exist in places like New York and California. And that's the reason this production, I presume, was set up in New Mexico to begin with. So uh, is there a concern, do you think, that regulations on the books notwithstanding, that there might be less willingness to be strict about enforcement in those places? Let's parse it out. First of all, the, the largest reason that a production goes to 
New Mexico or Georgia is not so much that um, uh, that labor costs might be cheaper or that there's less regulatory enforcement. It's that those states have bought themselves entertainment industries by providing what are called tax incentives, but really are cash rebates in many cases to the producers. So as much in case of Georgia, as much as 30% of what a production spends in the state of Georgia gets paid by the state, gets rebated by the state. Uh, now that, that does create some tension, but you have to look at who enforces what regulations. The, uh, the occupational safety regulations, if they don't have a state OSHA are enforced by the federal OSHA and they're not you know, gonna be influenced by the, a state's desire to have a, a thriving entertainment industry. The civil liability is enforced by individual plaintiffs. In other words, the family of uh, the cinematographer who we, again, we have to acknowledge this is a horrible, horrific uh, thing that occurred. The family of the cinematographer uh, may choose to sue for wrongful death. Uh, and I don't think that a judge or a jury there is necessarily going to say, well, we're going to soft pedal this because we want to we want to help Hollywood. Finally, criminal liability, uh, you know, is the is the local DA and the local sheriff uh, going to be influenced by by Hollywood? There may be some glitter in the eyes, but the flip side is criminal liability at all is a difficult reach in cases like this, because, you know, clearly this was not deliberate homicide or something of that you know, sort, this, this may rise to the level of involuntary manslaughter, or it may fall below that line and, and be something viewed as, as civil. Uh, there's very little precedent in general for uh, criminal prosecution of accidental deaths on set. It has happened, but uh, it's not the most frequent thing. Jonathan Handel, veteran entertainment attorney. Jonathan, thanks. Well, when we come back, even with shots already going into arms, the COVID vaccine booster debate, far from settled. Listening to KNX In-Depth, he's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. COVID booster shots already going into the arms of those 65 plus and then younger immunocompromised people and some people in high-risk workplace settings. The CDC and the FDA signing off on the boosters with support from the various advisory panels of experts. And yet the necessity of those shots remains an unsettled question among infectious disease physicians and immunologists, especially when it comes to the need for boosters in younger, uh, healthier people. A uh, New York Times story covering all of this highlighted some real concern about the decision-making process around the need and administration of boosters. Now, we're talking with two experts who have had uh, front-row seats to this ongoing debate. Dr. Camille Cotton works in the Infectious Diseases Division at the Massachusetts General Hospital, and she's a board member of the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. Also with us is Dr. Celine Gounder, who's a professor of medicine and infectious diseases at NYU's Grossman School of Medicine, and she formerly served as a member of the Biden-Harris Transition COVID Advisory Board. Doctors, thanks for being with us. Uh, Dr. Cotton, let me start with, with you. I uh, I mean, one of the problems since the beginning of the pandemic, I think that expert after expert has told us on this show has been messaging about all sorts of things. And has the messaging been really bad about boosters? Because it, make, it makes some people who don't want to get vaccinated for whatever their reason point their finger and say, yeah, you see, uh, you need a booster. Obviously, the vaccines don't work, which, of course, isn't true. 
Well, I don't know that I would say that the messaging has been bad. Um, I do think that there's a lot of misinformation out there. Um, I do recommend that when people want clarity, uh, I would turn to this CDC website because for me, when I look at that, it's really crystal clear as to what the recommendations are. And um, often there's supporting information as to why they're making that recommendation. It is unfortunate that some people conclude that they should not get vaccinated at all because um, of the need for boosters. We are seeing amazing protection, amazing robust immunity from uh, these vaccines. And they really are a medical miracle that we were able to develop these vaccines so quickly and they are incredibly safe and incredibly effective. We have you know, hundreds of millions of people dosed and um, so much uh, safety data. It's really quite um, amazing. And it will be our way out of this pandemic. Dr. Gounder, where do you think we are in terms of people? And, and as Dr. Cotton notes, you can go in and look up the different categories. But it kind of seems to some that it's basically if you want one, you can get one because anybody can say, oh, yes, my workplace is high risk or, oh, you know, I, I'm in a busy setting or I see a lot of people. I travel a lot. So maybe I should just get one just to be sure. Yeah, I think where the messaging has been less clear is around what is it we're actually trying to accomplish and what is it we're trying to prevent? And the vaccines are highly effective in preventing severe disease, hospitalization, and death. Even without a booster, you are very well protected if you have been fully vaccinated with two doses of Pfizer, two doses of Moderna. Uh, with J&J, I think we have recognized that you probably do need two doses. It's also a two-dose vaccine, so not an inferior vaccine, really just another two-dose vaccine. Um, I think where it gets confusing is, do you need a booster? And that really comes down to what is it you're trying to prevent? And you are getting additional protection, particularly in the elderly, people who live in long-term care facilities like nursing homes, uh, and people who are highly immunocompromised. Those groups do get additional protection against severe disease, hospitalization, and death by getting that booster. For everyone else, it's really unclear that you need a booster if those are the things that you're trying to prevent, uh, where you may have additional benefit is if you're trying to prevent every single infection, even a milder infection, there may be reason to give uh, additional doses to others. But I think this is where it really comes down to what is it you're trying to prevent and accomplish. Dr. Cotton, uh, in looking at that New York Times piece, uh, I think the thrust of it was that a lot of people who were in the position to, to eventually make the decision at the FDA and the CDC uh, felt kind of cornered by the Biden administration, by the Biden White House, when he made that speech early on promising a date when boosters would be available before the data was even in. Uh, do you feel that way? I did. Thank you for asking. I did not feel particularly cornered. Um, the FDA and the CDC committees really we review the scientific data based on the you know clinical trials that have been done, and we make good decisions. And um, statements were made about when boosters were going to be available, and you know instead we went by when the information was available, and we made good decisions. Um, I think everyone's trying to do the right thing and trying to protect as many people uh, during this uh, worldwide pandemic. And so I do think they were trying to do the right thing.
And that is the way it's supposed to work. It should come from you guys, or it should come from the FDA, and not necessarily from the White House. Yes, that is that is how it usually usually would proceed. And Dr. Gander, uh, when it comes to to younger people, this is where it gets a little confusing. Uh, you know, there seems to be little doubt among experts that, it, and I think you said it earlier, that uh, elderly and and I I guess it's a even there, it depends how one defines elderly, but elderly people, those who are immunocompromised, would be helped by a booster. Is it still not particularly clear in your mind uh, that younger, healthy people need a booster? Yeah, it depends on what data you look at. There is data from Israel that suggests that even people in their 40s might benefit um, with added protection against severe disease, hospitalization, and death. Uh, but I personally would like to see that data replicated elsewhere. That's really the one data set where I've seen that signal. And for the Johnson Johnson crowd, because I feel like they kind of have felt left behind in this whole process all the way through, this is more clear, right? Even for healthier people, younger, if they got it four, five, six months ago, they got the one dose thinking it was one dose, they should go and get either another J&J &J, or you have the option to, to mix and match with, with a Pfizer or a Moderna? Yeah, look, I, I think it was noble to try to have a single dose vaccine. It simplifies your uh, logistics of rolling out vaccines, getting everybody vaccinated. It's a lot more equitable because a lot of people face real barriers to getting vaccinated. That could be time off work, that could be childcare, transportation. And so minimizing the number of visits they need to make to get vaccinated certainly reduces barriers as well. But most of our vaccines, almost all of our vaccines, in fact, are two, three, four dose vaccines. The Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are two dose vaccines with possibly an additional dose for certain populations. And so again, you know, the fact that the Johnson and Johnson vaccine turned out to be a two dose vaccine is not a uh, failure of that vaccine. It's just really a vaccine like most of our other vaccines. Well, Dr. Cotton, uh, Dr. Gounder just mentioned something interesting because she rattled off three, some vaccines are three, four dose vaccines. Some people think that the Pfizer, Moderna ones are likely to be three dose ones. Are you seeing anything in the Israeli data? Because they do have, as I think you folks have pointed out, uh, much earlier uh, data than we have generated in this country because they started much earlier. Are you seeing any signals that we need boosters beyond the third shot? So far, we're not seeing that. Um, you know, they only gave Pfizer vaccine there. And so far, it looks like they are having excellent protection from that third dose. Um, so, so far, we're not seeing that. But, you know, thinking long term, this pandemic is here to stay. It's going to be with us for years on some level, hopefully not with as much disease as we currently have. But I would anticipate that we're going to have an ongoing need for additional doses of vaccines, similar to what we see with influenza and other infections. I mean, I, we're not done. We're not going to be done this year. Dr. Camille Cotton works in the Infectious Diseases Division at Massachusetts General. And Dr. Celine Gounder, Professor of Medicine, Infectious Diseases, NYU's Grossman School of Medicine. Thanks to you both. That wraps it up for today. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m.